So here, here's what we're going to do. Um, so I have a plan every night to get through a certain amount of material. I make no guarantees that we'll get through that amount of material each night. We'll just kind of see how it goes. I think I'm already in trouble on, on tonight's lesson. Um, and what we're going to do is actually going to start with this story from Eugene Peterson as a way to kind of get you into what is biblical theology all about. Who here has heard the term biblical theology before? Okay, so, and, are, and you feel like you're really familiar with it? And that's why you're here and you're excited about it? Or you want to learn more about it and that's why you're here? The, the latter one. Okay. All right. So Eugene Peterson is, um, you've heard me quote him probably on a Sunday morning, and he's one of my favorite authors, and he an, was an incredibly gifted, I'm still not used to the fact that he died about a year ago. Uh, he was an incredibly gifted scholar and churchman and pastor. And uh, I've learned a ton from him about the Bible and about Jesus and about the church. And so I wanted to read together this little bit. And we'll probably do this a couple of times, at least actually a few times over the course of the class. I like reading time. I love to read uh, with people and to people. So I hope you enjoy this as well. So this is Living into God's Story by Eugene Peterson. The Bible is basically and overall a narrative an immense, sprawling, capacious narrative. Stories hold pride of place in revealing God and God's way to us. It follows that storytellers in our Christian community carry a major responsibility for keeping us alert to these stories and the way that they work. Our best storytellers learn their craft from Jesus, famous for using story to involve his listeners in recognizing and dealing with God in their lives. In both the Old and New Testaments of our Christian scripture, story is the primary means of bringing God's word to us. For that, we can be most grateful, for story is our most accessible form of speech. Young and old love stories. Literate and illiterate alike tell and listen to stories. Neither stupidity nor sophistication puts us outside the magnetic field of story. The only serious rival to story in terms of accessibility and attraction is song, and there are plenty of those in the Bible too. But there is another reason for the appropriateness of story as a major means of bringing us God's word. Story doesn't just tell us something and leave it there. Story invites our participation. A good storyteller gathers us into the story. We feel the emotions, get caught up in the drama, identify with the characters, see into the nooks and crannies of life that we had overlooked, realize there is more to this business of being human than we had yet explored. If the storyteller is good, doors and windows open. Our biblical storytellers were good in both the moral and aesthetic sense of them. Of course, not all stories are good. Some lack honesty. There are sentimentalizing stories that seduce us into escaping from life. There are propagandistic stories that attempt to enlist us in a cause or bully us into stereotyping responses. There are trivializing stories that represent life as merely cute or diverting. The Bible's honest stories respect our freedom. They don't manipulate us, don't force us, don't distract us from life. They show us a spacious world in which God creates and saves and blesses. First through our imaginations and then through our faith, imagine and faith are close kin here, they offer us a place in the story, invite us into this large story that takes place under the broad skies of God's purposes in contrast to the gossipy anecdotes that we cook up in the stuffy closets of the self. They invite us in as participants in something larger than our sin-defined needs, in something truer than our culture-stunted ambitions. We enter these stories and recognize ourselves as participants, whether willing or unwilling, in the life of God. This needs saying because we live in an age when story has been pushed from its biblical frontline prominence to a bench on the sidelines, condescended to as illustration or testimony or inspiration. Both inside and outside the church, we prefer information over story. We typically gather impersonal, pretentiously called scientific or theological information, whether doctrinal or philosophical or historical, in order to take things into our own hands and take charge of how we will live our lives. 
We commonly consult outside experts to interpret that information for us. But we all know that we don't live our lives by information. We live them in relationships, in the context of a community of men and women, each person an intricate bundle of experience and motive and desire, and of a personal God who cannot be reduced to formula or definition, who has designs on us for justice and salvation. Information gathering and consultation of experts leave out nearly everything that is uniquely us, our personal histories and relationship, our sins and guilt, our moral character and believing obedience to God. Telling a story is the primary verbal way of accounting for life that the way we live it in actual day-by-day -day reality. There are no, if few, abstractions in a story. Story is immediate, concrete, plotted, relational, personal. And so when we lose touch with our lives, our souls, our moral and spiritual, our God-personal lives, Story is the best way of getting us back in touch again, which is why God's word is given for the most part in the form of story. And it is a vast, overreaching, all-encompassing story, a meta-story. The form in which language comes to us is as important as its content. If we mistake its form, we will almost certainly respond wrongly to its content. If we mistake a recipe for vegetable stew for a set of clues for finding buried treasure, no matter how carefully we read it, we will end up as poor as ever and hungry besides. If we misread a highway road sign 60 miles per hour as a randomly posted piece of information rather than as a stern imperative, we will eventually find ourselves pulled over on the side of the road with a police officer correcting our grammar. Ordinarily, we learn these discriminations early and well and give form and content equal weight in determining meaning. But when it comes to Scripture, we don't do nearly as well. Maybe it is because Scripture comes to us so authoritatively, God's Word, that we think we, that all we can do is submit and obey. Submission and obedience are part of it. But first, we have to listen. And listening requires hearing the way it is said, the form, as well as what is said, the content. Stories suffer misinterpretation when we don't submit to them simply as stories. We are caught off guard when divine revelation arrives in such ordinary garb. And we think it's our job to dress it up in the latest Paris silk gown of theology or outfit in a three-piece suit of ethics before we can deal with it. The simple or not-so-simple story is soon like David under Saul's armor, so encumbered with moral admonition and theological constructs and scholarly debates that it can hardly move. There are always moral, theological, historical elements in these stories which need to be studied and ascertained, but never in despite of or in defiance of the story which is being told. Spiritual theology, using Scripture as text, does not so much present us with a moral code and tell us, live up to this, nor does it set out a system of doctrine and say, think like this. The biblical way is to tell a story and invite us, live into this. This is what it looks like to be human in this God-made and God-ruled world. This is what is involved in becoming and maturing as a human being. We don't have to fit into prefabricated moral and mental or religious boxes before we are admitted into the company of God. We are taken seriously just as we are and given place in his story, for it is, after all, God's story. None of us is the leading character in the story of our lives. God is the larger context and plot in which all our stories find themselves. My hope in this class and the weeks that we're going to have together, 13 of them, God willing, um, is that what will happen for you is what happened for me in my early 30s. I had never heard of the word biblical theology before or historical theology or pastoral theology for that matter. I had heard of systematic theology, but never biblical theology. And I can remember how 
absolutely massive it was in my understanding of who God is and who I am in relationship to God to start to see the Bible as one grand redemptive story, a story that God was telling and is telling and will be telling for all of eternity, right? He upholds the universe by what? Do you remember the text? The word of his power. God is constantly speaking all of this into existence, constantly telling a story. If he were to stop talking, we would all go poop and disappear. It is a story, and we're living in his story. And so I hope that biblical theology will open some new doors and windows into who God is and who you are in relationship to him. Okay, so we have more copies. Uh, who, who doesn't have both handouts? So I'm just going to send these down. You just start passing them that way and raise your hand as they make their way around. You'll, you'll be able to, to grab one. Um, so turn to your handout if you... This uh, handout with that's the outline for the class. Um, so you see that our first three weeks, we're going to be answering the question, uh, what is biblical theology? So defining the topic, biblical theology as guardian and guide for the church, and then defining the tools of biblical theology. Uh, and then we're going to move into six weeks of the stories to be told, so biblical theology displayed. So the idea of biblical theology is that there's multiple themes that run throughout uh, the narrative of the Bible. And so we're going to explore some of those themes, kingdom through covenant, Eden to New Jerusalem, the people of God, sacrifice, mission, and idolatry as key story themes that go from the very beginning all the way to the end of the scriptures. Um, and then we're going to put the text to work. So I, I want... Um, I want to make sure that you understand that you are all theologians. There's a lot of people in the church that they like look at pastors or they look at teachers and scholars and professors at universities and think those men and women are theologians. But what is theology? Do you know what theology is? Right. God. So it's the, it's merely the study of God, and. Who here studies God? Okay, so you're a theologian. And, and so I want you all to be able to, when we're working through, the, we're going we're gonna to do some work together. There's going to be quizzes. Are you, ready for, are you ready to go back to school? You thought it was only your kid that was going to school. So um, I won't be handing out grades and so forth like that. I know, that would really be fun for me, actually. Um, <laughs> You can bring apples and stuff. You could leave those up here on the, on the front. Um, but I, I want, my point in all that is theology isn't for books. Theology isn't for stuffy rooms and kind of ivory towers in academia. Theology, by definition, John Frame taught me, is practical. If it's not practical, it's not being worked out in your life, you're not really doing theology. And so we're, we're going to work together in here, and we're going to learn together. And so those last four weeks, we'll be taking all the things that we've learned about biblical theology and those stories throughout the larger story of the Bible, and we'll start working through some texts together. So let's uh, begin. What is biblical theology? Biblical theology is the discipline. Oh, and I should tell you, too, at any moment, if you have a question, don't be shy. You can raise your hand, stop me. I'm happy to stop and answer if something isn't clear and uh, make it clear. So biblical theology is the discipline of learning how to read the Bible as one story by one divine author that culminates in the person and work of Christ, of the Messiah, so that every part of scripture of the story is understood in relationship to Christ. So we're not supposed to approach the Bible as a textbook. We're not supposed to approach the Bible as a reference manual. We're not supposed to approach the Bible as a rule book or a regulation or policy manual. Uh, it is not primarily an ethical guideline for us. It has all of those components in it, but it is first and foremost a story. 
and seeing the Bible as a story, as one story from Genesis all the way to Revelation, a coherent story, is a way to read the Bible. It's a hermeneutic. It's, it's a way to interpret it. So do you have your Bibles with you? I hope you do. I hope you have, it's going to be just like on Sunday morning. I hope you have a paper Bible. Uh, I, I prefer paper Bibles so you can put notes in them and you can, you can write in the margins. But if you don't have a paper Bible with you tonight, that's okay. We're not going to call you out. Open on your screen, your, your iPhone or your tablet and uh, open to Luke 24. Luke 24, and I'm reading, I, I know we have probably lots of translations in the room, and so, so you know I'm reading from the Christian Standard Bible, so that's a translation that, that I read and preach from. Um, so Luke chapter 24, verse 1. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they came to the tomb, bringing the spices that they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, and they went in but did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, suddenly two men stood by them in dazzling clothes. So the women were terrified and bowed down to the ground. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? asked the men. He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, It is necessary that the Son of Man be betrayed into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and rise on the third day? And they remembered his words. Returning from the tomb, they reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them were telling the apostle these, apostles these things. But these words seemed like nonsense to them, and they did not believe the women. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. When he stooped to look in, he saw only the linen cloths. So he went away, amazed at what had happened. Now, that same day, so, right, you just heard a meanwhile, right? Like, so you're in the story. Here, this is all happening over here. Meanwhile, that same day, two of them were on their way to a village called Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. Together they were discussing everything that had taken place. Okay, so what did you just note right there? They're about seven miles from Jerusalem. So what did we just read in the beginning of the story? What was that? What, ha what had happened? That was the resurrection of Jesus, right? So the resurrection has happened, and these... Two disciples of Jesus are seven miles from Jerusalem, which means they're going away from Jerusalem, which means they think it's over. Jesus has been crucified. They don't know he's been resurrected yet. They're taking off. Together they were discussing everything that had taken place. And while they were discussing and arguing, Jesus himself came near and began to walk along with them. But they were prevented from recognizing him. And so Jesus asks them, in a very humorous little interaction, what is this dispute that you are having with each, other, with each other as you are walking? And they stopped walking and they looked discouraged. Of course they are. Jesus has died. This grand thing that they thought was going to happen seems is not going to happen. The one named Cleophas answered him, are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who does not know the things that happened here in these days? Playing along, Jesus asked them, What things? Enlighten me. So they said to Jesus, The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet powerful in action and speech before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and, le and leaders handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we were hoping that he was the one who was about to redeem Israel. Beside all this, it's the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some women from our group astounded us. They arrived early at the tomb, and when they didn't find his body, they came and reported what that they had seen, a vision of angels who said he was alive. We thought they were crazy, they don't share. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they didn't see him. Jesus said to them, how foolish you are and how slow up here to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Now note this, then beginning with Moses, okay, so what does that mean? Yeah, yeah, 
Exactly. Well done, Taylor. A long time ago in a land far, far away. <laughs> Beginning with Moses. So what does that mean? Pentateuch. So all the way, beginning in the beginning, and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. They came near the village where they were going, and he gave the impression that he was going farther. And Jesus is juking and jiving. But they urged him, stay with us. Because it's almost evening, and now the day is almost over. Because he was teaching them. Can you imagine it was like? So he went in to stay with them. It was as he reclined at table with them that he took the bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to them. And then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. Why? Why did they recognize him? Because he did what he just did. Think of the story. Last Supper. It's like, that's what he had done. He had broken. It's like, whoo, it's Jesus. Mm -mm. They've just been. And yeah, anyway, I, I can't preach. They said to each other, that's what they say. Weren't our hearts burning within us while he was talking with us on the road and explaining the scriptures to us? Here's at least one thing that we can take from that. We can have that same experience when we work through the Old Testament scriptures and can see Jesus that way, and our hearts can burn within us. The joy, like, I mean, think of what all that means, like the excitement and the passion. And wasn't it amazing? And he's making these, he had to be making all of these connections, showing them the arc of the story. Do you see? You should have seen all these things. You were slow, but let me show them to you. And they're just getting more and more and more excited, and they're sad that it's over. That very hour they got up and did what? What's it say? Oh man, we got to go back. <laughs> it's not over. <laughs> they found the 11 and those with them that were gathered together who said the Lord has truly been raised. So what's happened? The story's starting to come. There's pieces that are happening. The story's starting to come together. They began to describe what had happened with them on the road and how he was made known to them in the breaking of the bread. And as they were saying these things, he himself stood in their midst. He said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and terrified and thought they were seeing a ghost. And isn't that just remarkable? Jesus is so kind and so loving and so compassionate because what had these men just done? They had abandoned him. They had betrayed him in his greatest hour of need. He is the king of the universe. This, they just said a powerful prophet who did mighty signs. And now he's in the mightiest of all. He's risen from the dead. He's back. We called it wrong. Is he going to strike us down where we stand for abandoning him? Brothers, peace. Peace to you. It's okay. They were startled and terrified, thought they were seeing a ghost. Why are you troubled? He asked. <laughs> Just, where do we start, Jesus? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? Look at my hands and my feet. That it is I myself, touch me and see, because a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you can see that I have. And having said this, he showed them his hands and feet. But while they were still amazed and in disbelief because of their joy, now, now the joy is coming, he asked them, y'all have anything to eat? <laughs> so they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. Why do you do that? I'm real. They, touch me. See, I, I have a body. There's all kinds of things we could say about what is this going to mean for like our glorified bodies. In some sense, they'll be unrecognizable, but there'll be a sense in which we're still recognizable. There'll be some kind of change that's happened. But there's so much that we could say about the importance of this is a bodily resurrection. It's a very important thing in the scriptures, but we go on. 44, he told them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written, here it is again now, everything, there's a method to my madness here. I want you to see the importance of the story within a story. 
These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, so we're back to Pentateuch, and the prophets and the Psalms, or, or literally here in the Greek, the writings. So I, I think that actually encompasses the, the, all the wisdom literature, the Psalms, Proverbs, Job, Ecclesiastes, all of that about me must be fulfilled. And then Jesus opened their minds to understand the scriptures, which is why Paul can say, think over what I say, for God will give you understanding in everything. Just like happened here. He opened their minds to understand the scriptures. He also said to them, this is what is written. So he's saying that of the Old Testament scriptures, this is, this is where you find this truth. And then he summarizes the entirety of the First Testament in, I, I didn't count, but I think it's about 30 or so words. This is what was written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead the third day, and repentance for forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And look, I am sending you what my Father promised. As for you, stay in the city until you are empowered from on high. And he led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he left them and was carried up into heaven. And after worshiping him, they returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they were continually in the temple praising God. This is the word of God. And then you should, if our Bibles were constructed correctly, you would turn the page and you would see the acts of Jesus by the Spirit through the apostles as the next book in your Bible. <laughs> That's what should be there. I don't know why we separate Luke's two-volume work on the work of Jesus, but we do. So just make a note, write in your Bible right there at 53, go to Acts 1 verse 1 to continue the story that God is telling. So what, what did we learn? What, what book does Jesus refer to in verse 44 that must be fulfilled? Just by way of review now. And, and, and so what, what's that encompass? Our entire Old Testament, right? Our entire First Testament. And what does he do in verse 45 for them? He opens their minds. Yeah, he opens their minds. And with opened enlightened minds, what could they now understand that the Old Testament actually teaches? Right, so the striking thing about the beginning of verse 46 is, is those words, this is what is written in the Old Testament, that truth that Taylor just told us about. So the reason that I've taken you here to Luke 24 is that it is a critical part of the overall story of God that helps you understand the rest of the story of God. It is, as some of us learned in the How to Study the Bible class last semester, that understanding what genre you are in or what covenant that you are in is critical to interpreting the passage that you are currently studying. So in that way, the discipline of biblical theology is the pursuit of understanding the larger story and then all of the themes within that larger story so that we understand the particular pieces and parts of the story in relationship to each other and therefore understand our part in the on ongoing story of God. So this is why for the last, I think it's been somewhere between 18 and 20 years, I've attempted to read through the Bible, the entirety of the Bible, in a year so that I can constantly be immersing my mind in the overall story of the Bible. 
And what we see that is remarkable here in Luke 24 is that Jesus gives us the central interpretive key to all of it, namely himself. Jesus is the interpretive key to the Bible. It's like they say at the Bible Project. Anybody familiar with the Bible Project online, right? Like just a fabulous resource that makes amazing videos to help us understand the Bible. Their little tagline is, the Bible is a unified story that leads to Jesus. It's why we here at Grace are committed to grow one step closer to Jesus through the story about him that we find in the Bible. So let's just Let's jump past the story of Jesus, past that bit about the Spirit coming at Pentecost, because that's what he's talking about, right? Like, I am sending you what my Father promised, the Spirit, that's going to happen in Acts, and then on into the letters of Paul to see how he understands this truth. It's kind of his version of Luke chapter 24. You can find it in first, if you turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 to 4. I'll read it for you. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 4. Now I want to make clear for you, brothers and sisters, the good news that I preached to you, which you received, on which you have taken your stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold to the message I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I passed on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to to the scriptures. So do you see it there? Paul is saying that the scriptures, what we call the first testament, was all about Jesus and what he would do to be the climax of the story God began telling in that first testament. And if you go on to read 1 Corinthians 15, see a lot of people stop at verses 1 to 4 and they think that Paul is like his only deal is, I just want to proclaim Christ and him crucified. So all Paul really cares about is the cross. And they'll point to 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 4 to make that case. But they don't read from verse 5 all the way to the end of that chapter in which Paul goes on to take us all the way back to the creation story, explain the fall, why Jesus had to come, and that there's a new creation that is coming. And therefore now, go and live and everything you do, know that your labor is not in vain because this whole story is being worked out by God. So even though he wants to say the cross is incredibly important, he tells the entire story of the Bible in one chapter to the Corinthians. Jesus says something very similar about the scriptures in John 5.39. You pour over the scriptures, right? He's rebuking the Pharisees because you think you have eternal life in them. We don't want to be wrapped up in bibliolatry. Okay? We can make the Bible an idol. The Bible is a doorway into discovering Jesus. You pour over these scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them, and yet they testify about me. Don't miss the point. It's a story about me. Okay, so I've said that biblical theology is a way of reading the Bible. It is knowing how to read the Bible so that every part is understood in relation to Christ. It's having our minds opened like those two disciples on the road to Emmaus so that we can see how it all points to Jesus. Now, this doesn't mean that we carelessly impose Jesus on every text, okay? It means that we pay close attention to each text on its own terms. So first we want to see, like, how's the story just operating on its own in this part of the narrative, but then we want to look how every text falls into a number of one of the themes found throughout the story and then trace that kind of like, you know how you can see like a, a main river and then often you'll see little tributaries that are going. So I remember when we were, went rafting the first time that we moved here and we're going down the Arkansas River. And at one point there was these little cloudy little spots on the river and it was because there was little tributaries coming off the chalk cliffs and he our guide explained to us how that's all coming in and at certain points the Arkansas looks just white because it's when the rainfall is coming really heavy. All those tributaries, that's what we're doing. There's these little stories and they're all tributaries to find our way to Jesus. Charles Spurgeon said, first understand the text and then make a beeline to Christ. Listen to how Don Carson defines the subject of biblical theology. Biblical theology seeks to uncover and articulate 
the unity of all the biblical texts taken together, resorting primarily to the categories of those texts themselves. So what, what he means by that is just what you see on your handout on that first page. He's just saying there's a number of categories through the scriptures. So we want to be able to discover what are those categories and how they make their way through the story. So let me give you one as an example so you can kind of have um, some framework in your mind for exactly what we're talking about here. So there is a theme of temple throughout. So what it results in, so this is the new studies in biblical theology series. About 35 of you. I call them the silver books, obviously. And so one of one of these is by Professor. I, I had a class with G.K. Beale, and he wrote a book called The Temple and the Church's Mission: A Biblical Theology of the Dwelling Place of God. And it was the first time that I started to see the temple connection all throughout the scriptures. Some of you are probably are already aware of this, right? So, you, so we. We see God creating man and woman in a garden, right? And we see God in fellowship with the man and the woman, walking in the cool of the day and interacting with them. Like, because that's the whole point of this is, is to be dwelling. He created us to have uh, fellowship with us, right? And then because of the fall, they're ejected from the garden. And so relationship and fellowship is broken. So God creates... What is the whole system that he created in order to maintain fellowship with his people again? Sacrifices, and where did sacrifices happen? In the temple. Have you seen pictures of the inside of a temple? What is in there? There's trees along the walls. There's pomegranates that are carved into, the, into what we would call like kind of the crown molding of the temple. Right where there, where at the garden, because when man was ejected, there was there was angels placed with flaming swords, cherubim and seraphim. We see at the holy of holy place where God's presence. What 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 is the temple for? So that God can descend and His presence is going to come into the temple. Sacrifice is making a way so that the dwelling place of God can be with man again. And then what happens when you go to the very end of the scriptures? There's a new heavens and a new earth. And what do we see in the new heavens and the new earth? We see a throne. And out from that throne is what? Rivers of water, like the three rivers that were flowing out of Eden. We see trees that are lining the streets where we're going to fellowship with God. And, and the nations go and they eat the leaves of the trees, which is the life for the nations so that they have eternal life, just like the tree of life in the garden from the very beginning to the end. The entire story, there's a category and a theme of temple and dwelling. And we just keep seeing that over and over and over and over again. The important, that's biblical theology. Seeking to uncover and articulate the unity of all the biblical texts taken together, resorting to the categories that the texts give to us. When you first open the Bible and read through it, you encounter multiples of these categories. Creation, law, rebellion, rule, judgment, sacrificial lamb, atonement, a special people, and so forth. Biblical theology seeks, in Carson's words, to uncover and articulate the unity of all of those categories. Michael Lawrence, in his book, Biblical Theology and the Life of the Church, says it this way, Biblical theology is the attempt to tell the whole story of the whole Bible as Christian scripture. Christian scriptures. The key words are story and Christian. The whole thing is telling one story and it's a Christian story because it's all about Christ. Here's another analogy for why it's so important to understand these pieces so that we understand the whole story. Right? And, and I hope what you feel is kind of the pressure. Sometimes you say, like, I just don't understand the Bible. I can't make sense of it. I don't see what... Part of that is because if, we, if you don't understand the whole story, right, you don't understand the pieces... You can't make sense of the pieces when you don't know the whole, right? It's like taking, do you take, do you buy a novel and start in chapter 15? No. I mean, I know, I have a crazy friend who goes to the end and reads the end right away because he doesn't want to be surprised. <laughs> but most of us are not psychotic, and we actually start at the beginning of a book, and we start to read it through, right? Like, it's really important. 
maybe an analogy will help you from, for those who, like when I grew up, you know, maybe you grew up in the 80s with me. In the original Star Wars trilogy, what is the amazing piece of news that we discover right at the end of The Empire Strikes Back? Luke, I'm... No! And all of a sudden, that one piece of information unlocks. And did you go back and you watch? Like the, you're like, oh my word! <laughs> like it just makes sense of it. And if you don't know that piece of the information, you're not going to understand Return of the Jedi, right? Right. It changes everything. It changes how you watch the movies and how you anticipate the themes and what is going to unfold in Scripture. Yes, we're going from Star Wars to Scripture. The identity and the work of Christ are the crucial piece of the story around which everything else revolves, which means we live every aspect of our stories as an extension from that part of the story. So again, what is biblical theology? It is the discipline of learning how to read the Bible as one story by one divine author that culminates in the person and work of Christ so that every part of Scripture is understood in relation to Christ. Let me give you an example from Scripture itself. Suppose I am preaching to you about Samson from the book of Judges. We all familiar with Samson in the book of Judges? You remember Samson. He tears apart a lion with his bare hands, kills a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey. He is every Sunday school boy's favorite red-blooded biblical hero, right? This is how you grew up thinking about Samson, which is part of the problem. We've taught Samson as a heroic figure when, in fact, Samson is one of the last judges of Israel in a long line of judges who have failed. As the nation is swirling around the toilet bowl of destruction, Samson is kind of like that last bit swirling around the hole. And this is the reason biblical theology is so important. Because how are we supposed to understand the story of Samson and the story of the judges in the overall story of Israel and all of that as part of the overall story of humanity and God's covenantal dealings with humanity? In other words, what does Samson's story have to do with my story? And if you don't know the whole story and how all of the pieces relate, then you're not going to teach preach and understand Samson properly. And instead, you'll just get stuck extolling all of his virile virtues as a call to be courageous or wild at heart. How to be manly, right? Samson was so manly. Yeah. Another example of this would be misunderstanding the David and Goliath story. I think one of the most misapplied stories in all the Bible as a call to defeat all of the Goliaths in your life. It's not what that story is about. Biblical theology is a discipline that protects us against these kinds of misinterpretations and leads to more sound primary applications. It's not that you can't think four applications down the road, maybe, that God may help me overcome seemingly impossible odds. That's not the primary point of David and Goliath, and it's not the primary point of what's going on in Samson. Sure. Yes. Question. I think it's kind of helpful, though, um, that we see the flaws in the... Oh, absolutely. ...that God uses to still... Absolutely. Which is... And I'm just about to get there. <laughs> no, no. It's, I told you you could jump in. So... You can't observe that God is, Samson is a God-anointed judge. He was God, anointed by God. That he was endued with remarkable power through the Holy Spirit. The story starts off kind of cool, of course. That he, had, he was handed over to the enemies of God's people for the purpose of rescuing God's people, ultimately. But we must not miss that he found himself there because of his colossal failures his lack of wisdom, his inability to judge righteously and honor the covenant of God himself. He broke the covenant in so many spots along the way. So his story actually doesn't show him a hero. Rather, it teaches us about his flaws, 
and our need, our need for a righteous Savior, for one who will not disappoint us like every other judge or king or ruler or senator or congressperson or president that has ever lived. We need someone who isn't at the end of his life bargaining with God for a way to make up for it all, because that's what happens at the end, right? Let me just do something good at the end. I will give my life. But rather, we need someone who willingly goes to a place of sacrifice for his people, a kind of end he doesn't deserve out of love and displaying humility, calling forth our awe and our wonder and our praise. Samson's strength is striking. He fells a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey. But how much more striking is the picture of Christ as the judge on the last day with a sword coming out of his mouth with which to strike down the nations, treading the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty, Revelation 19.15. Only that judge is perfectly just and good. And Samson sets us up in the failures of all the judges for this expectation and longing for a judge who is perfect and righteous and good. In short, a sermon or teaching on Judges 14 to 16 should be one preached that explains the significance of that event, Samson event, in the immediate context of the story, but then makes a beeline to Christ to see its connection in the larger grand story that God is telling and bringing about. In order for a teaching or preaching event to be Christian, it must include Jesus and the good news. Think about that every Sunday. Have I included Jesus and the good news. I don't want to preach a sermon that a Muslim can say, I believe in everything that you said. That a Buddhist could say, I believe in everything that you said. I want them to be confronted with Jesus. And such a goal like that requires a full understanding of the full story. No matter where a text is located on the plot line, it should always be preached with the entire plot line in view or whether that's preaching, reading, your teaching. And you, you guys, probably all of you teach. You're, you're talking about the Bible with a friend or, or with one of your kids, or, right? Like you're, you're teaching. And so you want to be able to do that. You want to be able to make the connections and the whole story. Each point of the plot gains significance only as it relates to the entire plot. Okay, so that's by way of introduction. Now, what is the Bible, and what about it makes biblical theology necessary? There's a major presupposition or assumption I am making. Is there any questions at this point? Just stop for a second. Are you warm? It is really warm in here, isn't it? So we we have windows that can be opened. I was like, is it just me? Because I'm up here teaching. I think all the action is... You know, what's really great is to fill your bellies with food and then stick you in a hot room. All right, so any questions at this point? There is a major presupposition or assumption that I am making in all of this. The way that we read something is typically determined by the kind of literature it is. So if you pick up a newspaper, I don't know that anybody picks up a newspaper anymore, but I, I'm, just, I'm, just realizing, I'm just realizing when I said that, like, does anybody? I mean, I read the Mountain Mail twice a week, but <laughs> if you pick up a newspaper, You read a news story in a certain way, and you read a news story differently than you read a novel, or than you read a greeting card, or that you read a direction manual for your latest piece of Ikea furniture that's going to drive you insane. (laughs) Each of these are different kinds of literature, and so there are different rules for how you go about reading them. That was first semester. We're sorry you missed it. Biblical theology is crucial because of the kind of the book the Bible is. What is the Bible? What kind of book is it such that the discipline of biblical theology is crucial for how we go about reading it? Of course, not everyone reads the Bible as a story, a meta-story. Most significantly, people who don't 
think the Bible is God's inspired word, don't read the Bible this way. An older generation of liberal scholars, for instance, might have used the phrase biblical theology, but they were fascinated with just the diversity of authors from a diversity of cultures and the diversity of themes that run through the 66 books of Scripture. I can remember I was in a um, humanities course that I had to take requirement when I was at the Carlson School of Management at the University of Minnesota, and uh, he was absolutely fascinated with the structure of the Bible, but he spent three class periods trying to undermine the truth and veracity of the Bible. And liberal scholars have been fascinated. They weren't so much interested in uncovering and articulating the unity amidst all that diversity, to use Carson's phrase. But we do biblical theology, we're, we're going to, because of several things we assume about how God and about God and how he reveals himself in Scripture. Now, this is adapted from Gerhardus Voss, is that just an awesome name, Gerhardus? Hi, who are you? Gerhardus. First, God's word was written by humans. 2 Peter 1, verses 16 to 21. For we did not follow cleverly contrived myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our master, Jesus the Messiah. Instead, and right there, just that sentence, Peter, as a Jew, is assuming a certain knowledge of Jewish history and the Old Testament scriptures when he says the sentence constructed exactly that way. Remember, Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's a title that he is the Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah, the power and the coming. We came to you in the power and coming of our Lord Jesus. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty, for he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory. Okay, who knows that story here? What story is he talking about? No. He received, Jesus received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Not his baptism. Transfiguration. Peter was one of the ones who went up on the mountain, right? And God's glory came down. And, and we heard this voice when it came from heaven while we were with him on the holy mountain. See, I didn't want to give you the clue of verse 18. It's, do you see why it's so great to know the whole story? So you, can, you know the story of Peter's life when you read through, especially Mark's gospel, who we think Mark talked primarily to Peter to come up 